Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another fine show for you. I'll speak with Flip the Park native Peter MacArthur about his transition from Adirondack Thunder player to Adirondack Thunder head coach. And we'll discuss playing in the weekly three ice hockey tournaments. And I'll have a uh, thumbs up to my late father, Jack, who inspired me to love hockey as I remember him on the 25th anniversary of his passing. Week two of the Saratoga horse racing season is in the books, and week three starts on Wednesday. And to give us a lowdown on what's happening at Saratoga is the Capital Region's premier horse racing writer, Mike McAdam. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. And are you on a lake this week? I'm not on a lake. I'm on a couch. And I, I recommend, uh, I prefer the lake, I would say, for sure, instead of the couch at home here. Um, the lake was very comfortable. It was nice to be there for a couple days. I got to see... Um, you know, a decent race at Finger Lakes and New York Derby, and uh, then jumped right in the lake and went swimming. And uh, this week I'm just sitting on my couch, That's which is uh, dramatically uh, uh, um, dropped down in level of uh, enjoyment, for sure. <laughs> well, let's look back at uh, too much anticipated duels that really didn't quite happen. Let's start with the uh, Coaching Club American Oaks uh, Nest and Secret Oath, and Nest uh, just ran away from the, the field there. Yeah, and I think of the two that we were anticipating, this one was a little more disappointing just because of the um, the margin of victory, which was 12 and a quarter lengths for Nest. I, I, I thought really she and Secret Oath would be, um, you know, kind of knocking heads all the way to the wire, and it just didn't happen. And uh, they hooked up at the 3 eighths pole, and it looked like game on. And then um, it lasted an eighth of a mile at the quarter pole. And that's just said, see you later. And didn't even look in a rear view mirror and, and just won for fun. Um, trainer Todd Pletcher, needless to say, was very thrilled with this effort from Ness, which catapults her all the way to the top of the um, three-year-old Philly division. Um, Secret Oath, Dwayne Lucas, her trainer, um, had, I mean – not to say he was making excuses afterwards, but he did point out the fact that she had a longer, she was coming off a longer layoff than Nest did. Um, Secret Oath had previously run in the Preakness on May 21st, and Nest, meanwhile, had previously run in the Belmont Stakes on June 11th. Um, maybe was probably more fit than uh, Secret Oath was. Um, Dwayne Lucas said she needed a race coming off that eight-week layoff. Um, he also pointed out just in general that horses that ship in from Churchill Downs and aren't based in New York um, I have a tendency to need a race over the Saratoga track before they kind of get it because every surface is different. So he's kind of counting on the fact that she needed one just from a fitness standpoint, but also just needed a close look at the racetrack in, in you know, race mode instead of training mode. So he, And with that in mind, he's all fired up to come back and run in the Alabama. So we will see the rematch between Nest and Secret Oath in the Alabama. Um, the other duel that we were looking forward to was between Clarier and Malathot in the Shuvi on Sunday. Um, and that was closer. Uh, Clarier was a length and a half in front, but clearly the best at convincing victory for her that puts her at the top of the Philly and Mare older dirt division. And then afterwards the, uh, the big news was from, uh, not news, but just kind of the reaction was, um, trainer Todd Pletcher saying that as soon as he saw Malathot walk into the, 
into the paddock. He, he knew he was in trouble with her. Uh, she was just dull and not her usually usual energetic self. Not that she's like kicking the stall door down um, normally, but he could tell right away when she walked into the paddock that she wasn't herself for whatever reason. And, he, and we'll have to come back to him and see if he has a better indication of why that was. But at the time, you know, immediately after the race, he said, I don't know if the heat got to her or what, but she definitely wasn't her usual self. And I guess to finish only a length and a half back, um, uh, bodes well for the future. Um, but in the meantime, Clarier is clearly the best, uh, Killian Mayor in that division. Well, let's look ahead to, uh, this week, uh, the top sprinters in the country are going to be in the spotlight starting Wednesday with the honorable miss and then Saturday, uh, with the AG Vanderbilt. Just talk about those two races. Yeah, um, the Honorable Miss on Wednesday, um, I had to pick that race this morning, and, and uh, I was kind of struggling a little bit between Bella Sophia and Frank's Rockette. Um, between the two of them, it's only a four-horse field, and really those two should be the only ones you, sh- you should consider in the win place. Um, and I, I kind of went with Bella Sophia. Um, they did run against each other. You want to talk about a duel? Go back and look at the vagrancy back in May between uh, Bella Sophia and Frank's Rockette, and that was a true length of the stretch, head bobbed, swapping leads with every stride duel, and then just in the last final strides, Bella Sophia just kind of got a little bit of an edge. So based on that, they're hard to separate. But I ultimately went with Bella Sophia just because. Um, she's raced recently in the better roses and, and was pretty, pretty commanding victory for her holding off obligatory by, um, less than two lengths. Obligatory is a very good horse, but she's not running on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Frank's Rockette took, took that segment of the schedule off and hasn't raced since the vagrancy. So I think Bella Sophia should be tighter and hasn't raced more recently. And she had a really terrific, um, bullet workout um, July 16th, I believe it was. Um, so I'm just based on present condition. I, I'm leaning toward Bella Sophia, but who knows? I mean, if they recapture what they did in the vagrancy at Belmont, um, we could see what we were looking for out of Secret Oath and Nest in Malathot and Clarier last weekend that we didn't get. Um, and again, Frank's Rockette is breaking from the inside to one hole and Bella Sophia is right outside of her. Um, so you know, maybe they'll make up for what we didn't get last weekend. Then, meanwhile, in the uh, AG Vanderbilt on Saturday, um, they, and the New York Racing Association put out puts out the probables like on the Sunday before each weekend, and and lists like who the probable horses are to run in the the following weekend's stuff. You know, the big stakes races. <laughs> you don't see this very often, but there was one horse that was probable or possible for the AG Vanderbilt, and that was Jackie's Warrior, which I hope that doesn't suggest that we're going to see a walkover where nobody enters the AG Vanderbilt <laughs> and he just breaks out of the gate by, by himself and just goes for a cruise around the track for a workout, essentially. Um, so I don't know who else is going to show up in this race, but we will see by far the best male sprinter in the country when Jackie's Warrior... Um, he, uh, he he won a, uh, the Eclipse Award for Male Sprinter last year as a three-year-old, which is a little unusual, and also despite the fact that he finished sixth in the uh, Breeders' Cup Sprint. Usually, if you win a Breeders' Cup race, you're, you're, you're going, if you don't win it, you, you know, your chances are hurt to win an Eclipse Award, but that wasn't the case for him because he won everything under the sun otherwise, including the Amsterdam and the Allen Jerkins at Saratoga, which are the two big sprint stakes, um, the Amsterdam coming up this weekend. 
uh, this time around. Um, Jackie's Warrior this year has done nothing wrong. He's won his three starts by over ten, uh, almost ten lengths. Uh, most recently, the True North on Belmont Stakes Day by five lengths. Um, you know, that's a grade two race. He won the grade one Churchill Downs on uh, Kentucky Derby Day uh, by four lengths. So he's been sort of a featured undercard star um, on the undercard of both the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont Stakes this year. Oh, and just to correct myself, because uh, we're picky about these things, accuracy in, in the journalistic profession and everything. Um, Jackie's Warrior, now that I'm looking at his PPs, he, he didn't run on the Belmont Stakes undercard. It was the Friday the day before, so uh, um, I'll correct that to start with. But um, whoever shows up to run against this horse in the AG Vanderbilt this weekend is really up against it. Um, it'd be nice to... You know, the way these dirt-graded stakes have been going, it's, the meet's still early, but it's been pretty much short fields every time, and this one might be even shorter than than the um, CCA Oaks in the, um, in the shooty last weekend. So hopefully somebody shows up, but whoever does is really going to be in big trouble because this horse is on fire, and he's coming off a championship and is just laying waste to the male sprinter division right now. Um, you know, and after after this weekend, we fully expect to see him later in the meet in the forego on Travers Day. So it, no matter, so we've been talking a lot about duels and two horses banging heads and everything. We're not going to see that in this race, but it will be an opportunity to see by far the best uh, male sprinter in the country. Um, the, obviously, the Haskell was run this past Saturday. Uh, Cyberknife wins the, the over Tabia and uh, Jack Christopher. The three-year-old males uh, remain in the spotlight with the Jim Dandy at Saratoga, where we'll see uh, Chad Brown's uh, Preakness winner, Early Voting, and Zandon take on Epicenter, among others. What are you looking at that race? Um, right now, I think it's looking like a pretty good race. Um, Epicenter, we haven't seen since the Preakness when he, you know, had another heartbreaking second place finish and he worked the other day in the rain on Monday, um, on the Oklahoma training track. Um, early voting, of course, the Preakness winner in Zandon, who was battling with, uh, um, Epicenter in the Kentucky Derby before they both got picked off by Rich Strike. Uh, at 80 to 1 odds. I'm sure people remember that pretty vividly um, just because of the weirdness of it and everything. Um, should be a good race. There's a couple other interesting horses that are supposed to run, including Tawny Port, who was not um, embarrassed in the Kentucky Derby winning uh, or finishing seventh and was like less than five lengths uh, behind and then came back and won the Ohio Derby. He's supposed to run. Um, looking back to the Haskell, Last weekend, um, that was the turning point for um, Chad Brown to figure out if Jack Christopher was going to be able to run longer distances, um, i.e. the uh, Travers later in the Saratoga meet. And so he ran him at a mile and an eighth in the Haskell. And he ran great, um, but he also ran not a mile and an eighth um, winning race. Um, and they needed him to look like a, a mile and an eighth horse to even think about the Travers. And when he finished third after, again, running very well, no complaints about how he ran from Chad Brown the day after, um, they are going to point toward the um, uh, the Allen Jerkins at seven furlongs on Travers Day um, instead of the Travers. Um, so in the meantime, uh, Brad Cox, trainer Cyberknife, said he'll come back in the Travers, so that'll be cool. Um, but in the meantime, we'll see Chad's other two, Early Voting and Zandon, who are going to continue to be on track for the Travers, running in the um, in the Jim Dandy on Saturday, along with Epicenter and and uh, um, 
Tawny Port. Um, we'll, we'll see when the entries come out exactly what the field looks like, but it could be pretty good. And those are the three main uh, the main ones we're looking at, early voting, Zandon and uh, Epicenter. Um, between the two Chads, early, early voting is considered more of like a front-running type, which is why he didn't want to like throw him in against um, – uh, Jack Christopher and the Haskell, he did, they kind of have similar running styles. You didn't want them, like, sort of canceling each other out. Um, and early voting shouldn't get in Zandon's way either because he has a different running style. He comes from off the pace. So, you know, maybe they'll hook up. If they do hook up, it'll be at the wire, um, we're guessing. They're both working lights out. Early voting just shipped up last weekend and had his first taste of a breeze on Saratoga's main tracks. Um, he was down at Belmont Park with the thinking that he might stay down there and run in New Jersey and the Haskell. And then once they made the decision last Monday, they said, all right, let's get him, let's get his butt up to Saratoga and get a breeze into him over the track, which apparently went well. Um, so Haskell was kind of the big one last weekend. And then we get to Jim Dandy and all the pieces that fall out of those two races. We'll, we'll have a better picture on what the Traverse field will start to look, look like on uh, August 27th. Well, we saw something unusual on Sunday, a no-contest race in the seventh race uh, because of uh, they couldn't get the gates off, off the off the course. What what exactly happened there? Well, that's exactly what did happen was um, there was a malfunction with the uh, the main tractor. That was, what happens is um, and it, you, you have to realize this was a race that was over a, a lap long. It wasn't a sprint where it wouldn't have been an issue at all, where they just break out of there and they would never encounter the gate again. This was a mile and a sixteenth on their inner turf course, which means they got to hustle that gate off of there because they're going to be running through that same territory to get to the finish line. But the tractor stalled or something like that, which um, fortunately the outriders are positioned all around the track, and one of them on the backstretch noticed they were having trouble with the tractor. So right around the half, they got about a half a mile left um, in a mile and a 16th race. You could see the outrider like waving his hand down at, as the field went by just to alert the jockeys that there was a problem on the other side of the track. Um, so great job by him to notice that or I got it radioed down to him or whatever. Um, in the meantime, they hooked up another tractor to the malfunctioning tractor, and that tractor was able to drag both the tractor and the starting gate out of the way. So everything was clean by the time they came through, but they didn't know that. And uh, it was weird because you saw a jockey on the lead um, kind of started after they went past that outrider, started looking around and looking across the track. And then all of a sudden everybody was like, these jockeys are turning their heads when they should be, you know, tunnel vision forward. And you see a lot of them are kind of easing up their horses. Um, and because they did the right thing and eased up and didn't act like it was still a race, the New York, it was the easiest decision that the New York racing association is going to have for the whole meet and declaring it a no contest. I mean, once, once the jockeys started easing up their horses, um, it, it's not a race. It's not a fair contest anymore. And the funny thing was when they did get around the turn and they got to the point where the starting gate would, had been stalled, but now it was gone, all they had was clear racetrack in front of them. And a couple of jockeys were like, well, I guess I should persevere to the wire <laughs> as if it's still a race. But they don't know. So, so a bunch of them started riding again and like it was a race. And a bunch of them were so like, eased up way back that i mean they were strung out all over the track so it's kind of a weird thing the hard part for nairo was figuring out what to do with the wagering because i think there were like 19 different wagers that this affected um the 
the singular seventh race stuff was easy. It's all automatic refund. That's the win place show and anything that is just confined to the seventh race, like the exact of the trifecta and the, and the superfecta, those were automatic refunds. But they had to figure out like what to do with the seventh race as a leg in the multi-race stuff, like the pick three, pick four, pick five, pick six. And it, it, so they kind of came out later with announcements saying, hey, these are going to be refunded. Um, a couple of the multi-races were um, seventh, your seventh race pick. It was an all-win, which means no matter who you had in the seventh race, you just advanced to the next leg. Or um, So they kind of sorted all that out. But it was a weird thing. It does have it happen every once in a while. I kind of pulled – I remember – seeing one a few years ago and pulled it up on YouTube this morning where at Oaklawn Park uh, in Arkansas, 2008, the same thing happened except they couldn't correct it. They could not get the starting gate off the track and the field is coming around doing like a full lap of the track and they have to go like through that spot. And you could see the head-on, all the jockeys had to like kind of funnel through the gap between the end of the starting gate and the outside rail. And obviously that was a no contest, but it was, you know, it's a scary, dangerous thing with that big, humongous metal object in the middle of the track, um, taking up most of the track. So it, it does happen every once in a while. I, who knows what happened to that tractor, but the outrider and people, enough people were alert that they were able to let communicate to the jockeys that they had a problem over there and, and everything worked out. Okay. Except for, except for the people who, um, you know, liked their uh, their pick five or pick in the seventh, and didn't never got a chance to see uh, you know or any of those multi race ones. Never got a chance to see how the wager would pay out uh, or play out, and uh, so we'll never know. Will that race be made up at all by Naira, or is that? Um, just- that's a good question. Sometimes, like for instance. It, I, it might. Um, they may. They may throw it in as an extra down the line, so that those horses have a chance to come back relatively quickly and um, run against each other for the conditions that they, they did refund. Uh, or I don't know if it's a refund or just a purse allocation. They did give over three thousand dollars back to each owner, um, as opposed to distributing the purse. And I don't know how that affected the purse money. Um, so like when we have cancellations or like due to heat wave or the track gets rained out or washed out and there's, there's races canceled, especially if it's a stakes race, they will definitely recard that race, um, like within the, the next week and just throw it in as an extra on one of the cards. This race, I don't know if it was, wasn't a stakes race, so I don't know if it was really carried enough weight to, to kind of like put it together on a card. Maybe they will. I don't know, but that's a good question. We'll see. Yeah. Well, Mike, appreciate it. Looking forward to your coverage in week three of the Saratoga meet and uh, have some fun up there. All right. Thanks for having me on here, Ken. I don't expect to be in any lakes anytime soon, but I'm, <laughs> I'm still accessible. So. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. That's uh, Mike McGadden. Clips of Park native Peter MacArthur joins me next to discuss taking over as head coach of the ECHL's Adirondack Thunder. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hey, Saratoga Horse Racing fans, you have a chance to win a $50 gift card to a Daily Gazette advertiser by playing the Gazette Saratoga Pick 7. Here's what you do. Pick your horses to score the most points in the first seven races at Saratoga Racecourse and win the $50 gift card. To play, go to www.dailygazette.com pick7 and make your picks 15 minutes before post time the day of the race. The Saratoga Pick 7 contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not affiliated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. 
Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports writer Will Springston. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. It's always good to talk some hockey in the summer, and I did that on Monday with Clifton Park native Peter MacArthur. On June 21st, the 37-year-old MacArthur ended his 14-year playing career and was named head coach of the ECHL's Adirondack Thunder. He played parts of four seasons for the team. We talked about making the transition from player to head coach and his involvement with the three ice hockey tournaments. Well, Peter, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, how does it feel to be going from playing for the Thunder to coaching the Thunder? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question right now. Um, sometimes it's bittersweet, but I just love to be involved with the game of hockey. Um, I think that when we had the opportunity to come back and join the Thunder in the first year, it kind of, it really reinvigorated my passion for the game, just being back in front of family and friends, um, having people around you that you care about and vice versa. So when you look at the big picture, that's still a really big part of, of my life and our lives. So while I would love to play forever, eventually, you know, we all have our playing days come to an end. And I just find myself to be very fortunate to, to still be in the game and to be involved in Glens Falls and to be the head coach of a team that I love so much and gave us an opportunity. It's, it seemed like the timing was just perfect for it. So I'm excited for, for a new challenge. And they always say the next best thing uh, to being a player is a coach. So I'm a pretty lucky guy. Were you were you looking at you know, playing playing another year or two before hanging it up before this opportunity came up? Oh yeah, no, there was no there is no question. Um, if we were in North America, we would be playing for the Thunder. Um, there were some options to go back to Europe as well, but when this opportunity arose, it was kind of I wouldn't say a no brainer because you don't know you're gonna you're gonna receive the opportunity. But it's, you know, I found a lot of things in the hockey world and life in general just have to do with the timing of your opportunities. So I think the timing was right to try to get into this side of the things. Uh, what was it like playing close to home? How much fun was that? Oh, it's the best. I was just out there skating this morning in the local impact program that Ron Kuhl runs um, down in Schenectady and talking with some of the younger guys there and we kind of all echoed the same sentiment that playing high school hockey here was probably the most fun I ever had playing. Um, obviously, now it's, it's a bit more of a business for me playing, playing pro hockey, but when you have your family you know, in the stands, you can go get a meal with them after. They're close to you for, for that support. There's really nothing like it. So I've said it so many times. I'm just really fortunate to have been able to, to play up there for yeah, you've Almost had 200 games or something. You've had um, obviously your dad coached at Shenandoah. You played for him for a couple of years. You also played for Jack Parker at Boston University. Uh, what influences are they? Will you will they be on your coaching style? Um, totally different guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's a bit more laid back than Jack was. Jack was very intense. He was the kind of guy that would you, you wanted to be, you wanted to not, not break you down, but he wanted to just kind of take you down a peg before he built you back up. But he was very, very detailed from, from the way we would walk, walk out of the locker room, um, to how he would sit on the bench, you know, and, and 
and my dad was, was very honest. This is where you stand, this is why, and this is how you can fix it. So I think you can learn positive and negative from everybody you're around, and, and those are two guys that I'll definitely learn on the positive side of things, and especially especially with my dad. Um, obviously, coaching in our backyard here, it'll be, it'll be fun to do some roundtable stuff with him and reflect on experiences that we've had together. So definitely excited about the resources at my disposal to, to help me, especially uh, in the younger days of my coaching career, that's for sure. What was it like to play for your dad? It was awesome. I mean, I was obviously younger, um, a lot less mature than, than I am now, but all you need to do for my dad was give an honest effort, and he'd be he'd be happy with you. So um, I learned how to have the passion and, and love the game through him. You know, he, he doesn't love hockey as much as he does tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love hockey as much as he loves tennis, and that's rubbed off on me. He has such a passion, such an energy. He's always trying to to learn new things, but not forget about things that he's used in the past that have been effective. So, my dad just been an incredible role model for me. Um, I, I couldn't ask for a whole lot more in, in a father. So talk about this league. We obviously, you know, the ECHL is the, just a step below the AHL, but it seems like they're. It's spread across the country. I mean, the, the league says ECHL does not stand for East Coast Hockey League anymore. So, uh, but what is this league like? What was it like playing in this league? I mean, especially you being a veteran and you know, playing against really kid uh, players who are trying to you know, find their way into uh, a contract with uh, an NHL team. That's a heck of a league. It's gotten better every year. Faster, more skilled, smarter. Um the, the hooligan stuff has really gone away. When you look at the the top two teams in our division last year, Newfoundland and Reading, or should I say Reading and then Newfoundland, and they were all about puck position, puck possession, skating, um, where they're at on the ice, a lot of skill, uh, creativity. So uh, the biggest different, difference you see is when you move up levels are the habits that, that the players have. So we have fast enough and skilled enough guys to play at the next level. But as you go up, the room for error, the margin for error gets smaller and smaller. So so that's what we try to work on down here. It's, if you want to play in the American League, okay. We've got to fix some of your habits as it pertains to how you play along the wall or um, your details through the neutral zone, right? So you see guys that they have all the ability, but can they put it together and not be a liability when they move up to the next level? So Fast, skilled, getting better and better. More and more guys realize that you can use this league as a stepping stone. So, and I think that trend will continue. It should just keep getting better and better to where the NHL and the American League uh, trust this league even more as a development model. How has the game? How has the game changed since you started playing? It's just faster, more more crisp. Not as many guys that are just there to kind of do one thing, which would be fight or take others off their game. You know, you really you get exposed now if you can't skate, and I think that's the biggest difference. These kids coming up now really learn how to skate at a young age. They, they're watching the Trevor Zegerses of the world, and they're becoming more and more creative. So, yeah, I just I think it's it's turned into a, a more physical an intense form of, of soccer almost. Or you're seeing great tic-tac-toe passing, teamwork, creativity, 
up and down the ice flow within the game. So I think the game's in a really good place right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up I grew up in the 70s with the, the, the Broad Street Bullies in Philadelphia. And then, you know, I covered the Hershey Bears for five years when the AHL was still a uh, rough and tumble league. It really isn't that way today. But I think, the, no. I think the sport has really improved. I mean, the skill level is there. I mean, you see the occasional fight now and then. But, uh, I mean, I, I don't miss the fighting as much as some people do. But the physical play is intense. And it, it's it's a lot, lot better game, I think, now. You're seeing... I mean, I, I watched I, I watched the uh, uh, an old g- game from '74 P- Stanley Cup playoffs uh, the other night, and it's amazing how slow the game was back then. You don't realize it back then, and you know players are out there for you know two minutes shifts, and it's like it's uh, yeah. Now if you're out there past thirty seconds, you're out there too long. Oh yeah, no, that's funny. I was actually watching some NHL Network this weekend out in Pittsburgh, and I and I said to myself, "Oh my goodness, this is a totally." different game it was almost boring to watch um but yeah i mean it's, it's just a fun game to watch you're seeing guys make backdoor saucer passes and picking the puck up on their stick and they're doing this in full speed so i only imagine with the technology and the way guys are training and treating themselves nowadays that the game's gonna it should get even more fun uh, so i love it i think it's incredible it's helped me extend my career as well i, I, I like to compete but i'm not a I'm not a fighter. I'm a skater and a skilled player, so it definitely helped me out as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, how important is it for this team to have a local presence and you maybe attract fans to the to the games? Uh, I mean, I think it's important for the team to do well, no matter who who's behind the bench. I think that I can help in the recruiting process and relate to these guys because I, I'm literally just coming out of it. But I think no matter where you're at, you've, you've got to have a successful product and a consistently successful product. And that's more so than anything, that's what's going to bring, bring people to the rink. Whether it's a guy that's from here or not, if you're winning, people people want to be a part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's the plan for us. We want to win. We want to win as fast as we can, as often as we can. And we're going to work as hard as we can to get guys here to that want to be here and understand the type of opportunity that this could be for, for them. Yeah, you mentioned the recruiting process. It's almost like college in a way because you're looking for that you know, those players who uh, aren't, aren't being signed by NHL players. So, I mean, is it sort of, you know, going through that process, what's that going to be like to re- basically recruit and then, uh, sign players? Well, we're almost done. Um, got, a good, got a good group so far. It's really about finding the, the right character at this level. Um, a lot of the guys, they're really, really similar, right? They're, they can skate pretty well. They can handle it pretty well. They can shoot it. But what are they doing away from the rink? Well, how are they when things don't go well? So at this level, if, if you can recruit character and you know the type of people that you have, you're going to have a way better time um, bringing more good people in, right? Because it filters. The hockey world is a really small world. The word spreads fast, and we want Adirondack to be known as a place where we have good people and we have good hockey players, and guys end up going somewhere after here, right? They don't just play here for two years and then they're done. They play here for two years, and then maybe they're in the NHL like Ryan Lomberg, or maybe they're winning an Austrian Elite League championship in, uh, in Salzburg like Ty Loney did, right? So we've had a plethora of guys come through here and do it the right way, like, way and and they've afforded themselves even better opportunities in the game. So 
it's fun going through that process. You, you got to be patient, right? Um, some guys are are buzzing your phone all the time, begging for a spot right at the beginning of the summer, and other guys are they're waiting, hoping on bigger deals. And you kind of know that, that some players might fall to you if you can have that patience and be willing to wait a little while. So uh, it's, that's the game within the game. Uh, you really got to have a big picture outlook as it pertains to, to who you're looking and who you're trying to bring in. How tempting will it be for you to say maybe be a player head coach? Uh, not, I mean, not full time, um, but it would be pretty easy to call your own number when you're really struggling to find somebody, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you could potentially be the tenth forward for a night rather than bring a guy in that's maybe going to have terrible travel or hasn't played a whole lot lately. You know, whatever the situation might be. So. Um, I'll be staying in shape. That's what I'm telling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of staying in shape, you're still playing right now in that three-on-three uh, uh, ice hockey that's going on that CBS Sports Network uh, is showing every Saturday. How much fun is that? Best summer job I've ever had, hands down. <laughs> What's, talk about that. I mean, it's it's three-on-three, three and I mean, it's, it's kind of fun to watch. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's three-on-three it's three hybrid rules. Um, there's only a face-off to start each, uh, eight, so we play two halves, eight-minute running time. Face-off starts each half. Other than that, there are, no, there are really no whistles. Um, penalties are, are jailbreak penalty shots where the other guys chase you down, and that puck is live. The, the shooter doesn't have to shoot it. He can do whatever he wants. Um, there are three preliminary games. The three winners move on to the semis, and the highest-scoring loser moves on to create four, and then semifinals championship. And if you win, you get a nice paycheck uh, following Thursday. <laughs> uh, so there's six teams, six skaters per team, plus a goalie. And then we do we do eight weeks straight. So we were Vegas, Denver, Grand Rapids, Hershey, London, Ontario. We just came back from Pittsburgh. This weekend we go to Quebec City, then Nashville, then a week off, and then the top four of six teams we meet up in Vegas for August twentieth for the finals, which wow. is uh, just the big money draw for the, the the winning team. Each player on the winning team wins one hundred and twenty seven thousand dollars. Ooh, wow! Yeah, <laughs> in one afternoon of you know you win two three on three games, you're walking out of there with six figures. So. Like I said, it's the best summer job I've ever had. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Will you do it next year if they invite you back? <laughs> oh, without a doubt. It's in my contract up in Adirondack that I'm allowed to do it until uh, Three Ice kicks me out. So I don't know if I'll be afforded the opportunity. Everyone under the sun wants to be involved with this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're taking advantage of all the guys that are there right now. Our team's actually – we've actually won three of the first six um, and lost in the finals in another one. So we're, we're in first place right now. I think we're pretty much clinched to go to the to the playoffs. So and we have a great group of guys. It's been a lot of fun. I've had the family with me for, for two of the trips, and they're coming again this weekend to Quebec City with me. So both boys, my wife, and my actually my parents are coming this weekend. So it's been uh, the best word, honestly, to describe it is it's just surreal. You know, you're walking around, and you've got the six Hall of Fame coaches there, uh, among others, so it's awesome. It's been incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like fun. It's been watch, good to watch. So, uh, have you rounded out your staff yet? 
we have, uh, let me think, almost. I think we made a decision today on, uh, on a physical therapist, which I can't disclose who that would be. Okay. And then um, later in the middle of the week, we're going to announce our assistant coach. And then I believe we're very close with our new PR guy as well. So that process is pretty much tidied up i'm happy about it for sure it's uh it's important that those things at this level you spend so much time with that's with the staff right so when that first game rolls around in october what's what's the nerves gonna be like uh i think i'll be less nervous than as a player honestly um it's weird it's funny you know i have a lot of confidence in conveying conveying knowledge to others as it pertains to playing the game of ice hockey um and if you do that and you have the passion and the energy for the guys, I think that they'll respond well. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Anytime I've ever taken the bench, whether it would be working at the USA Hockey Festivals or, you know, the, the few times I've been behind the bench with Thunder in the past few seasons or coaching a summer team, obviously it's not at the same level that this will be, but I've just always felt very comfortable behind the bench. I don't know, it's from watching my dad do it for so long or uh, being being on the bench as a player with a lot of different high-level coaches that have all been able to teach you something. Um, but it's just been always something I've paid attention to. So uh, maybe it'll be completely different. I'll be throwing up all over my toe caps before the game. But <laughs> I've never really felt nervous whether I'd be on the bench or running drills for no matter who it is. You know what I mean? Um, I, I don't know. Right, right now, I'm just excited to, to finalize the roster and start practice planning and game planning and, and watching video of other teams from the past season and, and stuff like that. So maybe it's because I haven't thought about it too much, but uh, I've always been comfortable being behind the players. Well, Peter, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, good luck uh, this season. Probably... We'll keep in touch, and then uh, good luck with that three-on-three, and maybe bring home some big, uh, big cash. Heck yeah! And that final, which I, I, we are clinched to be there, is uh, it's going to be on just normal CBS, so um, be live across the country. So hopefully, we can get a lot of five-one-eight viewers for that one. And I appreciate you having me on as well. I'll reflect on my father's influence on my hockey rating career next. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast. track is your premier source of horse racing news and events from the daily newspaper of the saratoga race course the daily gazette at the track features racing tips feature stories picks by naira racing analyst anthony stabile and andy serling and direct links to naira bets check out at the track at www.dailygazette.com slash at the track this is Union College men's hockey head coach Josh Hoji. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. And I'm going to um, get a little personal here if you don't mind. Um, I guess you, you know, if you know me and you know my coverage over the years of uh, uh, college hockey with Union College and uh, my love affair with hockey, it, it all began back when I was growing up in Philadelphia and my dad. Um, this time of year is always a tough one for myself and, and my mom because uh, on, on July 27th, 1997, my father uh, passed away uh, from a, a disease called Crotfield-Jakob's disease. 
And I guess the best way to describe the disease is um, the brain turns to mush. Um, you lose control of your bodily functions. You really can't talk, can't do anything. It's a rapidly uh, progressive disease, and it ends in death. There's no known cure, and I don't know if there's really any research for it. And the disease is one of those one in a million diseases, and unfortunately, my father was uh, uh, the one in a million. Um, so, it's, like I said, it's, it's a tough time of year. But I want to talk about his influence with me and, and hockey. Um, the Flyers, the Philadelphia Flyers came into existence in 1967, one of the six NHL expansion teams. And they play at the Spectrum down in South Philadelphia. And my dad at the time was working as a truck dispatcher for a uh, grocery chain uh, in Philadelphia. He was a truck, like I said, he was a truck dispatcher. And he worked the overnight shift. And... He would go down, and you know, some of the flowers were playing. He would go over to the spectrum and just, you know, just walk across the part of the street there, and check the games out. And he would go, and then he, he liked it, and as he became hooked on it. And then we got um, partial season tickets, and then we went full blown season tickets in the early seventies. And it was the right time to get in because right there the flowers were starting to get good. And of course, in nineteen seventy four and nineteen seventy five. Uh, they won back-to-back Stanley Cups, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, Philadelphia was a big hockey town, and uh, it was—it's—it was just a great, it's a great atmosphere at the Spectrum back in the day. And there's one memorable moment for me when I turned eight years old in 19 on October 24th, 1971. Uh, my parents sent a letter to the Flyers asking if I could go down to the locker room after the, the game that was being played on my birthday. And yeah, you, you think, yeah, that's not going to happen. But uh, Lou Scheinfeld, who was the vice president of the Flyers at the time, uh, wrote back and um, he said, sure. And uh, I got in the locker room after the Flyers beat the Blackhawks. I uh, got my picture taken with some players. I got autographs. One picture I have of I'm sitting with uh, Rick McLeish, who became one of the uh, team's prolific goal scorers in the 1970s. I used to have that you know, hanging around in my basement office in, in, in at home. And it's just uh, – it's a great picture, and I've always um, treasured that picture. Um, like I said, just being able to be in, in that building, especially on May nineteenth, nineteen seventy four. Um, but I, there's a funny stories. I almost did not get to that. Was not, not allowed to go to that game. Um, if you recall, if you're old enough to recall, nineteen seventy four was the year of the streak. And if you're not old enough, kids, look it up in Google. Um, we were at a first communion party in Southampton, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia, for the family friends. And the party was going on. Kids were hanging out in different separate rooms with the parents. Um, so my, my bar, dad, uh, dad bartended uh, on the weekends. Uh, so um, my mom took him to the bar, the bar where he uh, worked and was not that far from uh, where the party was. But where all the kids were off doing, watching TV, and you know, and then somebody says to me, "Yeah, why don't you go streaking?" I was like, "Nah," and then like, no, dared to me, dared to me, and okay, I did. I walked around, ran around upstairs a little bit, and then somebody told the parents. Well, my mom got back uh, from dropping off my dad. Let's just say there were a lot of uh, interesting-looking faces looking at my mom, and they told her, and let's say my mom wasn't happy, <laughs> was not happy with me, so. Got home, and I was just basically told, um, you're not going to the game tomorrow. And I was devastated. Um, so next morning, we went to Mass, and uh, just, uh, I just quietly went to my room afterwards and just you know hung out, thinking I'm going to be you know, watching the game on TV and not being down at the spectrum. But about a couple hours before 
the game. Um, my parents came in and said, you're going to the game. Uh, you're still going to have, you know, be punished and all that, but you're going to be allowed to go to the game. And my dad had convinced my mom to um, let me go. And I've always, you know, I may have not have told him, but I always appreciated him doing that because, I mean, to be in that building uh, that day, it was just an unbelievable atmosphere. And then to be able to go to the parade with my dad the next day and get, you know, get out of school and just be able to you know, enjoy the, the, the parade it was a lot of fun. Um, my family was involved in, with the Flyers fan club and, you know, we go to hockey con fan club conventions during the summers. And, uh, my father was, um, president of the Flyers fan club for a while and, uh, he got to, you know, meet a lot of the players. And I uh, have several pictures of, uh, him with some of the players and one particular picture of him working the Flyers fight for wives carnival. Uh, he's standing next to, um, Dave Brown and the late Brad McCrimmon. And I happened to see Dave Brown um, at a, the NCAA Hockey Albany Regional. Dave's now a, a scout for the Flyers. And when I showed him that picture, he said, yeah, I remember your dad. He's a good guy. And I was like, put a smile on my face. And uh, it was, you know, it's, it's amazing the friendships and bonds and people that remember my dad. It was just wonderful. And, I mean, I started my Hockey career, covering hockey in 1985, uh, a few months out of uh, college, from York College of Pennsylvania. Uh, I covered the Hershey Bears uh, for them for five, and did that for five years. And it was a, at the time, they were affiliated with the Philadelphia Flyers. So, my God, it's it, it a dream uh, job there to be able to cover a team and organization that you root for. Of course, you can't root for when you're covering the team. Uh, but, it, you know, I got to see um, some of the players Go from the NHL from the from the Bears to the NHL like Ron Hextall, uh, Gordon Murphy, uh, Jeff Chikrin, and I saw some veteran players like uh, Kevin McCarthy's now an assistant coach with the Washington Capitals, um, Al Hill who uh, played for the Flyers and was part of their 1980 Stanley Cup Finals team. Um, yeah, I learned a lot from those guys. Ross Fitzpatrick, another veteran down there. I mean, I, I learned and I keep in touch with some of those guys and Mark Lofthouse. I should mention him as well. Um, of course, then I came up here to uh, Schenectady in 1990 and helped out with the uh, first year of um, the, when they had th we had three teams here in the Capital Region. Remember, uh, the Adirondack Red Wings were the, the kings of the AHL and hockey here um, in the Capital Dist uh, Capital Region. Of course, you had the team uh, AHL team in Troy, the Capital District Islanders, who were put there after the International Hockey League team put a team in Albany. They moved the Fort Wayne Comets from uh, Indiana to Albany. Of course, that team ended up uh, folding midway through the season. And then I, the next season, I started covering uh, Union when they went Division One, And, uh, yeah, I covered the t team for its first 25 years. And then now I'm getting ready to uh, you know, start my sec uh, 27th season covering them uh, here in the fall. And I just – I. I think I think I'd like to think my dad's proud and watching over me as I cover this game and just knowing that all the fun we had going to games when I was a kid and it was just a lot of a lot of fun and I just want to let him know that I miss you, Dad, and um, love you, and um, I hope you're um, just watching what I do and hopefully ins continue to inspire me. Um, thank you. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment.
I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in New York. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Indiana Nash. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 21 winner in the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest was Linda Brinko of Albany. Lynn wins a $50 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Lynn. The VIP winners, well, that's, that's right, plural, winners, were all six of us. And that's a first. Uh, kind of a fluky situation. Of course, it was a fluky situation with uh, uh, Denny Hamlin losing the uh, victory on uh, Sunday night after their post-race inspection. So, crazy times in NASCAR. I'll announce the winner of the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest, and that winner's name will appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. To play in the contest, go to dailygazette.com and click on the auto racing contest banner. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you are doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family. Do it for your friends. And do it for your teammates. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Mike McAdam and Peter MacArthur for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed in the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.